Hi there, Paula Eamon here with a heart full of love for you and a heart's desire to encourage you to endure this short life with joy and hope, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. You're listening to Cloud of Witnesses. Last week I shared with you the first sermon my husband recently preached at a Christian camp in Wyoming during their winter teen retreat. He reminded us that Jesus has all authority and deserves to be listened to. His second sermon built on that concept by first pointing out how prone our hearts can be to skepticism. Just like the serpent tempted Eve with a manipulating question, did God actually say? Our hearts tempt us to ask the same question. What should we do to fight our doubtful tendencies? Let's find out in episode 15, Rooted and Grounded in Christ, part 2. Father, we thank you for a new day and all the gracious gifts that you have given to us in uh, the potential of this new day, as well as that we've already experienced. Thank you for the joy of fellowship and the beauty of the creation around us. Thank you for your word and what you've already been doing to speak to our hearts and minds through uh, what you've said to us in your word. I pray that you'd help us to listen. I pray that we would be open and sensitive to the work of your spirit, uh, that we would be ready to receive that we would be grateful and responsive. Lord, I pray that you would break down the hard places and make us tender and submissive to you. Do the work that only you can do, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to build on, over the course of this whole weekend, I kind of want to build on what we started with last night. Okay, so last night, we spent the whole first session that we were together discussing why we should care about what God has said, right? Uh, why we should listen to Jesus. So essentially, we affirmed from Scripture that God has spoken to us <clears throat> through His Son, Jesus Christ, and you should listen to Him for three categorical reasons, right? Because of His position, right? Jesus was the exalted Son of God, the heir, the one who had authority and power and, all, uh, and owned all of the ownership that God has given to Him, right? Because of His position, because of His nature, who he was. He was the brilliant reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, right? This is who he is because of his nature, and then because of his works. There were three of them. Do you remember them? Somebody shout one of them out. What's that? He created us, right? What else? He sustains us. And the last one, he redeems us. He created us. He sustained us. He redeems us. This is why we should listen to him, okay? But there exists in each one of us a natural attitude that kind of flies in the face of this, doesn't it? We face a natural opponent to believing that God has spoken and then listening to him. Sometimes we call it doubt. Sometimes we call it skepticism. Often we kind of clean up the concept and call it curiosity. And as with all great concepts, maybe a meme would uh, probably help us get the point across, right? A meme. Now, my, uh, my sons are probably going to cringe here, all right? That's okay. It's fine. Here's our meme. Sometimes when we read or hear what God has said, we respond like this. Actually, actually... I want to dig down into this attitude just a little bit, right? Because 
whether you want to admit it publicly or not, whether you want to admit it out loud or not, this guy exists in our head, doesn't he? And we look at what God's word says, and we try to measure it against what we experience in the world, and we say, ah, something's not jiving here, right? Actually, maybe something different is going on, okay? So here's my goal. My goal this morning is to persuade you to move from skepticism, I'll define that in just a second, to wonder, which I'll also define in just a second, okay? We want to shift from being ugly guy in the meme that says actually all the time, to somebody who stands in wonder and awe at what God has said and what God does, right? I think this is really significant for us. So what are we talking about? Let's, let's discuss, define what we're talking about here because I think this is really important for us to get on the same page because I don't want you to come away with the idea that I'm saying that you shouldn't ask any questions, right? I want you to ask questions, now, not, not everything that God has said is easy to be accepted or easily understood. And that should make sense because he's God, right? By definition, he's not easy to understand. If he was easy to understand, then maybe you should be God, right? So by definition, God is not easy to understand. We wonder oftentimes at what he does or how he accomplishes things. And not everything that we experience is easy to correlate with what we think God should be doing. Inexplicable things happen all the time, right? Even in science. Uh, I'll tell you a little story, a little personal story. Uh, I've got four kids, okay? Two of them are here, two of them are at home. My youngest son, his name is Jackson. About uh, three or four years ago, Jackson is nine right now, I think when Jackson, well, it was longer ago than that. I think when Jackson was three, when, when he was three, he began to have um, what are called muscular seizures, right? He would lose, so whether you think about it or not, when you stand up, your muscles are tense and they're working, right? We don't have to think about it. When he was three, he started to lose that muscular tension and he would just fall down. He'd fall down all the time. Now, he's three, so initially we thought, oh, uh, you know, he's just, you know, still figuring out how to walk, you know, his feet grew and he's trying to grow into his feet or something like that. It kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. So we took him to a doctor. At the time, we were living in North Carolina and we, could, we ended up with a referral, one of the premier uh, children's neurological units at Duke University, right? This is top-notch doctors and scientists that study in this kind of context. And we began to talk to him about what he, he was diagnosed then with epilepsy, a form of epilepsy. So epilepsy is just having some kind of seizure. Sometimes, it, and those seizures are all kinds of different seizures, okay? So he was diagnosed with this, and so we began to talk to this pediatric neurologist at Duke University and say, hey, help us understand, help us understand epilepsy. And he said, well, this conversation might be a little bit short because we don't necessarily understand everything about epilepsy, okay? We can see the effects of it. We see the seizures. Sometimes we'll put people in MRI machines and we can see lesions on their brain or parts on their brain where we can begin to identify, oh yeah, here's the source of the problem. Here's what's happening that is causing your seizures. But sometimes we just don't know. Now, as a parent with a child who is suffering an illness, you don't want to hear the top doctor at Duke University say, I don't know. Science couldn't explain it. There was no 
point at which that neurologist could say, oh yeah, this is what's causing your son's epilepsy, and here's what we can do to fix it. You know what his solution was? And in a lot of people who suffer from epilepsy, this is, this is their track, their course of finding some kind of solution. They have a list of drugs that seem to help seizures. Now I say seem because that's probably what the doctor will say too. This drug helps or it has helped some people. So we're gonna start here on this list. We're gonna start at the top and we're gonna start with the smallest dosage. And we're gonna give you the smallest dosage of this drug until we find that your seizures go away. And if that one doesn't work, we'll move on to the next one. And then we'll move on to the next one and we'll move on to the next one. And over the course of some people's treatments of epilepsy, they go through all kinds of different drugs and all kinds of different dosages to try to control their seizures because the doctors don't know what's happening. It's inexplicable, right? We live in a culture that idolizes science. And here is a very clear illustration. Science doesn't know everything. And there are times in which your experience will not mesh with what you understand or who you understand God to be. Why is it working like this? How am I supposed to understand this? Now, uh, to end the story so you don't wonder what's happening for the rest of the message, okay? Uh, Jackson was treated successfully. Uh, the medications worked for him to stop his seizures. For about two or three years, he was on medicines, and then he began to not have his seizures anymore. To date, he's been off of medication for a long time, and he has not since suffered any seizures. We are thankful and we're praising the Lord. But that whole circumstance was inexplicable. Science couldn't give me an answer. Doctors couldn't give me an answer. And you wonder why these things are happening. And it's that we have to be careful because just because we haven't seen or heard or experienced anything like this before doesn't mean that I can't hold on to something that is true. Sometimes we struggle to understand certain scriptural truths. We wrestle with how to make uh, a biblical applications in our 21st century culture. Now, it's good to ask those questions, right? It's good to ask those questions. Here is a distinction of biblical Christianity among many other faiths. Many other faiths will tell you, don't ask any questions, right? Just shut up and do this. Don't question anything. Just follow the, follow the path. Follow the line. Look, the scriptures before you are not a fragile relic. This is not indefensible. It's not un understandable. It is not outside of the scope of your curiosity. So ask the questions. Wrestle with the hard truths about God. Ask the hard questions about God and his word. Because God can handle your questions. He can handle them. Uh, Spurgeon was confronted with this question one time. How, what is the best way to defend Scripture? Um, <clears throat> that term is called apologetics. I'm sure you've heard it before, right? To defend the Scriptures. Here's the quote that he gave. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object <clears throat> and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. 
And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Apology means defense. The best defense of the gospel is to let the gospel out. Be a learner. Be someone who loves God enough that you take his word seriously and want to know him better and live for him. Be curious and ask why. Now, I'm going to define this as wonder, okay? Here's some characteristics of this attitude of wonder that I want you to develop. Uh, maybe we could call it sanctified curiosity because it leads us upward. It's, it's fearless because it asks why questions, knowing that God is the truth. It's hopeful because with God is the truth, then we can know that we have answers. And I don't have to live in a sense of despair. And it's meaningful because with an intentional God that deals in truth, my existence and the world around me have meaning. Again, here's a contrast, okay? The world, from the world's way of thinking to biblical Christianity. <clears throat> the world's way of thinking seeks to strip meaning from your existence. You can't really make an impact. What you do doesn't really matter. You're a blob of uh, randomly assembled atoms and proteins that have no purpose and no intention on your random pathway through this meaningless existence. But this is what the world tells you. Is this what God says? Is God stripping meaning from your existence? It's quite the contrary. So you can ask questions. You can be a curious learner who fearlessly hopes that in a God who is truthful to give meaning to your life, right? So I'm not saying, in persuading you away from skepticism, I'm not saying don't ask questions. I'm encouraging you to ask questions. Don't just ask questions questions, right? There's a difference between the two. You can be uh, the type of person <clears throat> who asks questions because you're not intent on finding an answer. As a matter of fact, you don't want the answer because if you get the answer, then you'll be obligated to follow the answer to your question, right? You don't really want to obey because if what God says is kind of in this state of limbo, then it's not necessary for me to accept what he says or even further to obey it. And we sometimes struggle with the difficult things that God has said, and we respond by questioning them to the extent that they lose any kind of meaning or impact in our lives. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Actually, I don't think that God was saying quite what you think he was saying. Maybe the meaning of God, what God has said is not as clear as maybe you think it is. There's no real way to come to a firm conclusion. Now, once again, this is God. So there are elements, there are aspects of his character and nature that we will never fully understand. There will be questions that we encounter in which the only answer that we can give is that we don't necessarily know and there is no way to come to a firm conclusion. 
But that's not this kind of skepticism. This kind of skepticism, in many ways, is an attitude that becomes a false sense of humility that recognizes my own ignorance, but does not desire to find an answer. In all actuality, this attitude seeks to prevent the finding of an answer. Everything becomes questionable and therefore inactive. Ask questions, but don't just ask questions. I call this just asking questions skepticism. This is what I think skepticism is. And we see it in contrast. Remember we said that, that wonder or sanctified curiosity is fearless and hopeful? This kind of skepticism is fearful and despairing. It's afraid of potentially finding the truth. It lives in a sense of despair and abandons all hope of all knowledge and it strips any kind of meaning from the world around you. So my goal is to persuade you, with the help of the Spirit and the truth of the Word of God, to move from this attitude of skepticism to a genuine sense of wonder. Okay? This is why we're coming back to Genesis chapter 1. Okay? We want to set up this contrast because this isn't new. All right? This is not a new struggle. This is not a new wrestling with truth, okay? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to have you guys help me with a few things, okay? And I want to see that from the very beginning, we see the importance of God speaking, and it's integrated, integrated essentially into the very first story we see about God, okay? God speaks, and as we, as we mentioned previously, that this means that we should listen to him. <clears throat> so let's look at the text here, and let's start to assemble this structure of what's happening here in Genesis chapter 1, and let's make some observations, okay? What is God's speech like, right? So here we are, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that, the, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, <clears throat> and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also 
<clears throat> and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let... Uh, fowl multiply in the earth, and the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over this fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given <clears throat> every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. What was repeated in this text? Tell me some repetitions. Repetitions are important for us to, to look at. God what? God saw that it was good. Good, that's a good one. What else? Evening and morning. <clears throat> evening and morning. Good. And God, said. and God said. Right? This is where we want to start. We're going to get to those. Okay? That's where we want to start. And God said. We've been talking about the importance of listening to what he says, right? Here we have it. From the very beginning, God has spoken, right? Now, let's characterize this because I think there's a beautiful structure here, okay? I got to skip on my meme here, but I want to characterize this. God said, okay? God's words have the power to call things into existence. Over and over again, Simply by the words of his mouth, God made things, right? Now, I'm using a very generic word, things. I'm not quite sure what else to use, right? Because he made it all. And he calls it into existence by his very words. Right? This is unique to him. There's not a one of us that can call something into existence by simply saying it, right? <laughs> Contrary to popular opinion, we can't speak things into existence. We can't. There's only one who can call something into existence, and that is God. Out of nothingness, God creates somethingness, which I'm not even sure is a word because spellcheck keeps underlining it in red. He calls into existence somethingness in nothingness through the power of his words. We can't replicate this. We can't build a technology that helps us fulfill this. 
This is unique to God himself. Through the power of his words, he calls something into existence. Okay. Not only that, okay, and this is a pattern that you're going to see all the way throughout the creation story. God said, and it existed. But he did something else. There's another word in there. I want you to take just a minute and look down through that. It's a synonym to spoke. It starts with a C. <laughs> called. Called. And I think this points us to this next part of the pattern. He has the authority to declare that particular object's purpose. He not only calls something into existence, but he doesn't leave it purposeless. Right? He doesn't just say, let there be light. But he calls it day and night he gives it a purpose this is this is significant right we don't have a god that has just created a whole bunch of stuff and then stepped back and said man i sure hope it all works out okay this demonstrates his intentionality his his purpose his his authority. He didn't create you without a purpose. Right? He has the authority, because he called it into existence, to say, now, here is your purpose. Right? And you see it all throughout the text, right? Night and day. What does he do for the plants and the animals? Your objective is to reproduce after your own kind, to fill the oceans and the land with the plants and the animals that are necessary for the sustenance of life. He gives it a purpose. He gives humanity a purpose, right? He makes Adam, verse 27, he creates man in his own image. And he blesses them in verse 28 and says, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. He gives it purpose and intentionality. God's words have the authority to declare that object's purpose. Okay. He has the power to call it into existence. He has the authority to declare its purpose. He has the wisdom to evaluate that object's worth. And you hit it. What does he say about all of these things that he's created? At the end of it, what? It was good. It was good. Who can evaluate worth except for the one who created? He creates, he gives it a purpose, and then he says it has worth. It's good. It's good. Friends, we live in a world filled with God's goodness. The things around us, the creation around us, is evidence of God's goodness. Okay? The people sitting next to you is evidence of God's goodness. Every single individual, and, and again, once again, this is what distinguishes Christianity, right? Because we believe that God created man in his own image, he now has not only the authority, but the right to declare human worth. And it goes for everyone, for all humanity. What does he say about you? 
you have been created in his image. And because you have been created in his image, you have worth and you have value. Is your worth or value determined based on your social standing? It's not. It's not. But in the practical realities of everyday relationships at school or in, uh, in other parts of your community, how often do we determine other people's worth based upon some abject or uh, uh, random social standing? Just because they don't have this or haven't gone there or don't uh, wear this or do that, then therefore they are less of a human being? Friends, the homeless person sitting in the gutter with absolutely nothing to his name has innate worth because God declared it to be so. Your worth is not determined by random social standing. It is not determined by economics or politics or even geography. Just because you come from a different location or a different country or are different nationality. God has the wisdom to declare, the wisdom and authority to identify human worth because he made it. He made it. Now, this is monumental. God has the power to call things into existence. He has the authority to declare their purpose and he has the wisdom to assign them worth or value, okay? We're going to contrast this, okay? God said, God called, God declared it to be good. You're in Genesis. Let's go over to Genesis 3. What does it look like to attack God's speech, okay? And this is where we're going to set up the contrast between what I described as skepticism versus wonder, all right? How are we tempted to deny God's word? Here we go. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. We're three chapters into the story. And you have the contrast immediately surfacing. God said, God called, and the serpent says, did God really say? Did he really say? Actually, did he really say that you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And it's, it starts, this whole thing starts with a seemingly innocent question. Did God really say? It plants the seed of skepticism. Now, I believe that this really is the pivot point of this whole account. It sets up the struggle of God saying something to this question to, did God really say? And honestly, this probably sets up the pivot point of the whole redemptive story of the scriptures as a whole. Because we feel the weight of this question, don't we? We experience this all the time. Did God really say that? It's not a new question. It happened all the way at the beginning, and it starts with a seemingly innocent question that on which your spiritual journey can pivot. 
starts with a seemingly innocent question, but it manipulates the truth, right? Did God really say that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, now we just read, all right, um, uh, Genesis 1, 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which the, is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Right? Black and white. And God said. Did God really say? This is a manipulation of the truth, right? You, you can't eat of every tree of the garden, right? It, it expands God's restrictions to make, them, make him seem not good. Let's see how this develops, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, did God really say? Verse 2, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, was that the truth? No, it wasn't. It was not the truth. So we've moved from the seemingly innocent question to this manipulation of the truth. We've expanded God's restrictions to make them seem not good, you know what that does? It calls into question God's intentions. He's hiding something from you. He's withholding something from you that may be good. You're missing out. Quite possibly, this could be the first instance of FOMO. Fear of missing out. God's holding back from you. Right? This is an attack against God's character. Right? So, and we see this. Let's read just a little bit of further. So the woman responds to the serpent in verse 3. Uh, we shouldn't touch it, otherwise we're going to die. Verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He fed the flame. Right? Yes, it's true. God's holding back on you. You could, you could be a god. You could be a God, and God's holding it back. He's not really good. He's not really good. And he's not really great, either. We have gone from the seemingly innocent question, we've moved through a manipulation of the truth, and now we've replaced it with a lie. God's not really good. He's holding back on you. Are you tempted to think this way ever? You don't have to answer that out loud because I know your youth leader or your parents or your friends are watching, right? Answer it in your head. But if you're anything like me, this is a real temptation. Is God holding out on me? Is he holding back from me something that is intentionally good because, he, because now we can move on to other things like well, if he's holding back on something good for me, then he must not really love me. He must not really love me. He must not care about me, because if he really cared about me, then he would give me all of these good things. And if he doesn't really care about me, then I'm kind of on my own here. And I can do whatever I want to do. And I can make life work my own way, because God's not good, he's holding out on me, and I'm missing out on things that are really good. We've moved from a seemingly innocent question through the manipulation of truth to a replacing it with a lie. Now, I don't want to leave you here, okay? I want to give you some tools to fight this level of skepticism, okay? Because it's real. You're going to face it internally, 
And you're probably going to face it externally too. You're going to have friends who say, did God really say? Did he really mean that? Actually, you're going to face this. Let's fight skepticism with a sense of awe, okay? And we want to do that in four specific ways. And to do this, let's, let's come back to a scripture passage that I think will help us see these four specific things. Hebrews chapter 12, okay? We're going to come back to Hebrews. Hebrews 12. <clears throat> Remember I said Hebrews has five warnings in it? This is a response to one of the warnings. <clears throat> and it's the warning about indifference, being indifferent towards what God has said. Let's fight skepticism by developing a sense of wonder or awe, okay? <clears throat> How do we do that? <clears throat> here we are. Hebrews chapter 12, we're just going to, uh, uh, a small section here, starting in verse 25, down through verse 29, 25 to 29, okay? See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped who, for if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on the earth, much more shall, shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then, uh, okay, that speaketh from heaven. We saw a direct illustration of that last night in the transfiguration. What does the scripture clearly tell us? That it was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Here is the voice from heaven if we, if we can't escape this, uh, if, the, if they're, uh, let's see, back up verse 25. <clears throat> For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shall shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that last phrase is really interesting, and we don't have time to, to deal with it much, but I will give you some, uh, some points on that one. How do we fight skepticism? Well, clearly, clearly here, even in the context of Hebrews, the, the entire book of Hebrews, what is he encouraging us to do? Pay attention to what God has said. Listen to Jesus, right? You, you had a chance this morning in your uh, morning devotional time to come back to the scriptures and to listen to Jesus because that's where he's spoken, right? It's clear. It's black words on a white page. Now, that doesn't mean it's all clearly identifiable right away. A lot of times you have to have historical context. A lot of times you have to have a lot of extra understanding. But you know what? The basic parts of what God wants you to know are not unclear. They're clearly declared. Who God is, what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he is going to do. Right? It's there in scripture. And we're not going to escape if we, if we refuse the things that he has spoken. Now, he gives this interesting, and it's, it's, it's uh, a little bit obscure there in, in verse uh, 26 and 27. He talks about two things, right? One that is shaking and one that is stable, okay? 
Maybe we could call it a kingdom that shakes and a kingdom that is stable. If it helps you understand, you can even go back to Jesus' parable, uh, the wise man and the foolish man, and if it kicks off a song in your head, that's even better. All right? What is the wise man, Jesus' parable? The wise man, what does he do? He builds his house on the rock. What does the foolish man do? He builds his house on the, the sand. Right? Uh, we used to live in North Carolina. Right on the outer banks of North Carolina is some beautiful coastline. Uh, it's incredible. Absolutely beautiful. And there's people that build houses out there all the time on the outer banks. And they're beautiful houses. You know what they're building their houses on? Sand. It's all sand. Right? It's all these sandy little uh, islands and sandbars and all of this stuff. And you know what happens? North Carolina is notorious, notoriously hit with hurricanes. And every time, it happens every time. Every time the hurricane comes up the coast, you know, it's come through and it, it demolishes Florida and it hits Georgia and it works over South Carolina and then it gets to the outer banks of North Carolina and you know what it does? <laughs> House on the sand goes flat, right? As we see it all the time. And this is the context of what's happening here in, in Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews here. He says, look, if you build upon a foundation that is shaky, shaky and he says, it's the voice of God that shakes it. The voice of God shakes this. Build your life on a stable foundation by receiving, by listening to the truth that God gives you in his word and adopting it into your life. Right? That's, the, that's the whole point of Jesus' parable, the, the wise man and the foolish man. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what's, what he's saying here. Don't close your ears to what Jesus has had to say. Build your life on a stable foundation. And then there's this beautiful phrase. Okay, um, uh, uh, verse 28. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, we've built our life on the Lord Jesus Christ through, sal- through salvation by faith through grace and obedience to what God has said. We're building our life on the Lord Jesus Christ, this kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace. The concept here is let us be grateful. Let us receive God's good favor to us and respond with gratitude for the good gifts that he has given. I think gratitude is a huge part in fighting skepticism. Because at the core of skepticism, what is it? God isn't good. He's holding back something from you. What what works against that? No, God is good. And I am going to intentionally practice gratitude. It's a battle. Because what are we naturally geared to do? Five-star review, four-star review, two-star review. Oh, that was junk. That's a one-star review, right? It's built into all of our social structures. I, I have the right to give an evaluation of what's going on. And if it's not like I like it, I'm going to let you know. I subscribe to um, a lot of uh, different types of newsletters, right? At the bottom of the newsletter is, how, did the, how was this newsletter? Was this a five or was this a one? Let me know. Empowering me to be less than grateful It's built in. It's built into your nature to complain, to fail to see the goodness of God. 
God warned the nation of Israel, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6, as they come into the promised land. He says to them, you're going to get farms that you didn't plant and wells that you didn't get, dig. And you're going to be tempted to forget God. Right? Did it happen? Psh, yeah, of course it did. Because that's who we are. We have to actively fight against a natural skepticism that causes us to doubt the goodness of God by intentionally expressing gratitude. Taking our minds at the beginning of the day when we are tempted to wake up grouchy. I didn't sleep well. I'm tired. I don't want to get up. I've got homework. I got this. I got that. I got the other thing. That's how we're geared. It's not natural for us to get up in the morning and to say, God, today you have given me a good gift. It's called life. I took air into my lungs this morning. I woke up. I live in a place where I have eaten today. I'm not cold. We have a warm building. All of you, as rich or poor as you are, live in the top 1% of wealthy people in the world. And you could be the poorest person in America. You'd still be in the top 1%. You have a lot to be grateful for. And that's just the physical things. Ephesians chapter 1. We have been given every spiritual gift in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. We're going to get to this just a little bit later. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have been given hope for a future through the relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a God who acts towards us as a father. He's not a random deity who seeks to crush us at every corner. We have lots to be grateful for. Are you taking the time to intentionally practice gratitude? It might even mean that you have to force yourself to do this by sitting in front of a blank piece of paper with your own thoughts until you can write down five legitimate things that you are genuinely grateful for. But you know what? That might be hard the first time, and maybe even the second time, and maybe all the way up to 10 times or 20 times. But the more you do it, the more you'll see it the more you'll be aware of it. Look at how much of God's goodness surrounds me. In every place, in relationships, in the small joys, in the big ones too. Practicing gratitude is a, is a great weapon against skepticism. The last one here. We've received this grace, right? And by this grace, whereby we must serve that, that word serve also has connotations of worship, God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Not only should we be practicing gratitude, but we should be worshiping Jesus Christ, right? And these things are interconnected. They are. Because the more we listen to Jesus and the more we seek to build our life on a stable foundation and the more we practice gratitude, you know what's going to be the natural response of our heart and mind? <laughs> Jesus, how could you be this good to me? 
and I will worship you with reverence and godly fear. That fear is the sense of awe or the sense of wonder that I kind of want to build into this word wonder, right? Because it's not just uh, uh, familiar, which it is, but it's also reverential. It's a recognition that he is greater than I, that he is bigger than I, that he is more powerful than than I am, that he is more authoritative than I am. And this is where I think this last phrase in Hebrews chapter 12 gets, for our God is a consuming fire. Everything everywhere is consumed by who he is. And this lifts our perspective from a simple material perspective that is grateful for the good things that God has given to being grateful for who God is. Being grateful for his person. Recognizing that I live within the context of God, not just God's gifts. I don't just enjoy the good things that God has given me, but that leads me to enjoying God himself. So would you fight the skepticism that naturally occurs within your heart and mind by listening to Jesus, by building your life on this stable foundation, by practicing gratitude, and by allowing that gratitude to lift your eyes in worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Okay, we're going to keep going in our next session. Take these truths, meditate on them. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the times in which we're tempted to believe that you're not good and that you're holding out on us. Forgive us for the natural skepticism that wonders if you really said, if you really said that, if we really meant that. Forgive us, please, as we live in this culture, as we live in the world around us, from absorbing this skeptical attitude that pushes us further into fear and despair and meaninglessness. God, I pray for myself. I pray for my friends here this morning that by your grace and through the work of your spirit, would you turn their eyes upward, please? Would you help them to see your goodness? Would you help them to submit to a God who spoke all things into existence and gave it purpose and intentionality and then gave it worth. Would you help us please to be grateful? Would you work in our hearts to be grateful? And would then by your spirit, would you take that gratitude and turn it into worship? That we would not only listen to Jesus, but that we would worship him too. Pray all this in Jesus' name.